Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Raw TV founder Dimitri Deganis and Story Films co-founder David Nath about the Tinder swindler and the thief his wife and the canoe maker's approach to stranger than fiction filmmaking. While writer David Farr and director Alison Troughton discuss their sky drama The Midwich Cuckoos, which updates John Wyndham's classic novel for television. All three media-owned Raw TV is behind factual series including Gold Rush for Discovery, Banged Up Abroad for the UK's Channel 5 and National Geographic, and more recently Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy for CNN. But the London-based company, founded two decades ago by Dimitri Doganis, has also carved out a name for itself with award-winning stranger-than-fiction documentaries, including Three Identical Strangers, Don't Fuck With Cats and The Tinder Swindler, the latter two titles both made for Netflix. Deganis spoke to Clive Whittingham about the way in which the true crime genre has evolved and Raw's particular approach to filmmaking. One of the areas I'm keen to explore is this kind of stranger than fiction direction the genre seems to be going in and you guys seem to be leading it because uh, every project that, that breaks through is is one of yours. Like Through Identical Strangers wasn't really crime, but Don't, uh, Don't Fuck With Cats certainly was and Tinder Swindler obviously more recently. So I just wanted to sort of chat to you for 10 minutes. I, actually, I think Through Identical Strangers does fall into that category. Okay. In the sense that I think it wasn't a criminal offence. Even though it wasn't a criminal offence at the time, yeah. I think that the basic narrative structure fits and the emotional charge fits what you are describing as the kind of strange and fiction true crime. So has this been a deliberate move by you? I remember chatting with you in Miami sort of pre-pandemic and pre-Don't Fuck With Cats. Has this been a deliberate move of you you guys to, to move off into this, like we said, let's call it the strange than fiction genre? Um, I don't think it's, uh, for us, it hasn't actually been a recent thing. I mean, if you think that the imposter was at Sundance in 2012, so 10 years ago, uh, and obviously that project had started, you know, a couple of years beforehand. It's it, it, it's a furrow that we've been ploughing for a while. What makes a good one? By one, do you mean film, series or any of the above? Well, all of these projects that you, we've mentioned so far have just absolutely broken through and gone gangbusters. I just wonder if there are, there, what are the elements to them that make them so successful, so addictive? You know, the audience seems to go crazy for them. I just wondered if there's something when you're developing that you're like, yeah, that's that's going to work for us because it's got this. Well, I, th- I think that there are things that make all true stories successful. So I think a critical part of that is some degree of relatability to your protagonists, even if they're an anti-hero. Um, I think there needs to be a focus on the emotional journeys of the people rather than just an analysis of the crime itself. So as an example of that, I would say that if you look at Don't Fuck With Cats, um, that's in a sense the story of the murder of a man in Montreal. 
But the way you get to that is through the emotional journey of two online investigators who are concerned for animal welfare. And I think Tinder is an amazing example of how even though people make decisions or choices that an audience may not agree with, there is something in their experience that they can identify with. So in that case, it was a totally understandable and legitimate desire for love and a quest for romance. And then, of course, the critical element which you're identifying is the kind of unexpected twists and turns that you would expect from a scripted narrative. And interestingly, I think some of the things that make documentaries of this nature successful, which is their implausibility, they're un- they're, they are unbelievable, make the scripted versions of them rather problematic, that they're, they're not believable. So these are often stories who's, who are only redeemed by being true. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, how um, how do you guys go about finding them? Finding them, finding the stories that, that work? Oh, that well, yeah, I mean, look, we've got an amazing development team, Ollie and Ross and, and Sarah and others here are, are extraordinary at unearthing those stories. Uh, but the, the other reality, new reality of that is every Hollywood producer, Hollywood agent, UK documentary producer and company are now scouring the globe, the archives and every article written for these kind of stories. So what is striking now is that when we do find these stories, normally there are a bunch of other people who've also found them and you're then trying to figure out why you should be the ones to tell it. And is that is that track record that, that will attract you to whoever whoever owns the story, be it a, a journalist or the people involved? I mean, I think any company trades on its kind of reputation and history when trying to convince people to go into business with it, right? So we, we are fortunate in that, obviously we've had some successes, but I think more critical is that the people been in our films are happy to recommend that experience to others. And I think that's often more persuasive than, you know, how many viewers receive or what the box office take was. I think for people wanting whether to take part, we rely on most it is the, I suppose, the recommendation of other people who've, whether it's Robert and David who are in Three Identical Strangers or others, who can say the experience was fair and positive and respectful. Um, and, and in a way, I think you have to really, you get lost in thinking this is just a great story for a film. Actually, these are people's lives and life-changing experiences and that has to be at the core of all the choices you make when you go in to produce something or try to produce something because i mean it is television at the end of the day or you know it's got to be entertaining but you know there are victims and you don't want it to be exploitative how how do you walk that that line sensationalist maybe rather than exploitative i guess i actually don't think it i don't think it needs to be and in a way i think recent successes whether ours or other people's have demonstrated that you don't need to be salacious or sensationalist to garner great audiences or to have an impact and also 
it's just uncomfortable. It, it's a completely inelegant telling of the story, if that's what you're relying on. And I often think that to revert to the most sensationalist telling demonstrates either a weakness in the story or the weakness or, or, or in the storytelling. Yeah, can also be a product. There's a good, there's been a couple. I won't I won't name it, but there's been a couple that I've watched that felt overstretched, like too many episodes, because we know like this true crime has gone into this sort of serialized place, and it's great if it can run over five or six episodes. But not every ser- not every story um, justifies that, right? I've watched one or two where I thought it could have been two or three episodes shorter. I mean, is that that another part of the development with with you guys and and Netflix usually? I guess like how many episodes and and how many episodes the story can carry for. Yeah, I think that's critical. I think um, I'd much rather watch a tighter tighter story, a shorter story, where I'm hanging on every beat of it and it leaves me wanting more than have my attention wander and find myself looking to see how many hours of this I've got left. (laughs) The challenge for us is often that once filmmakers get deep into the stories there often is so much that one could say the debate comes down how much should one say you know it's not everything that could go in it's what's the best telling and that's 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 often an active debate we are having all the way through production and i mean are we are we to expect more of these how i mean how difficult are they to to find and get hold of and do well because it's a great genre obviously netflix love it it's done very well for you i suppose in an ideal world you'd want to be doing like five a year right but not every and not every story sort of suits it so are they are they difficult to find and how many do you sort of envisage what's what's the development slate look like with you guys um you should certainly expect to see more from us (laughs) okay (laughs) um but but they are difficult to find right it's not like that's that's the that's the um the attraction of the genre right like not not every story is uh is going to suit this Uh, what I will say, they are difficult to find. And what I am noticing is that there are a huge amount of stories that are either being found, brought to us or proposed to us, which are not quite good enough, but or don't quite meet our bar for what those stories for the amount for the amount of beats and the amount and the and the journeys that those characters are going to go on. Um, but they are two thirds the way there, and I suspect a lot of those will end up being made not by us, but but I'm sure some of them will get made. But I think one of the one of the disciplines that we have learned is not to take on stories where, where it's not quite there because it's such hard work then trying to produce something worthy of one's time and effort. Get it there, yeah. Are there, are there like you say, beats or the, the bar? Are there, are there like, is there like a checklist or whatever that you, you guys... No, that, I don't think there's a strict checklist. I don't think there is a strict checklist, no, but I think it's just something you know. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, that that is something that comes with experience and comes with having... Um, comes with the experience of failure, honestly. It's very useful to have sat in an edit suite pulling your hair out thinking, oh, shit, (laughs) we don't have a third act here. Um, When it comes to deciding which stories to kind of invest time and resources in. And is it, um, is this a genre that's just particularly suited to the the streamers? Obviously, Netflix have have picked up your your shows. I think think that's a question for them, really. Like I say, we've been at it a while. You know, it's not, new for us we 
we've been doing it a decade or more. Um, I think uh, partly just because they're great stories. I mean, that's honestly, it's not the only thing we do. It's one of the things we do. I think what what unites everyone at Raw is a genuine love, a kind of helpless love and compulsion to great stories. And some of them fit within the, the genre you're describing, some of them fit elsewhere. And, you know, we've done we've done road trips, we've done horror, we've done true horror, we've done scripted versions of true and invented stories. So I think in a way, there are some of these stories that just are just cracking stories, but they're not the only type of cracking story and they're not the only type of story that we look at or we develop. Why they are successful and who they are successful for, in a way, you know, I'm a producer. I just try and get the money to make the stories we love. Uh, if it comes from the stream, it's great. You know, Threads Called Strangers was made for CNN Films. Brilliant. Um, uh, the, the Imposter was made for A&E Indie Films and, and, and Film 4. Love it. You, you know, uh, my job is not to just find these stories and curate them, but raise money from wherever will give it to us for the best execution of it and give it its best chance of creative success. So mm. I'm delighted the streamers are doing it, but why it's successful for them, they have they don't share that data with us. I don't know. Honestly, I don't. Yeah, there, there is I that. think they're great stories. So if you ask me why they're successful, I'm going to say it's simple. They're just great stories. Dimitri Deganis speaking with Clive Whittingham. UK Factual Specialist Story Films was established in 2016 by award-winning filmmakers David Nath and Peter Beard with backing from all three media. The company has gone on to produce titles including The Interrogation of Tony Martin and Deceit for Channel 4, David Beckham-fronted football documentary Fever Pitch for the BBC and most recently with a move into scripted series The Thief, His Wife and the Canoe for ITV and Witness No. 3 for Paramount's Channel 5. Co-founder Nath spoke to Michael Picard about how Story Films is continuing to evolve, its approach to developing projects, why linear TV can still trump streaming and the challenges still posed by Covid. For people who don't know Story Films, maybe just fill us in on a bit of the background of the company. Yeah, I, I guess we're a little bit unusual because um, we make drama and documentary. Uh, there's not a lot of indies that do that, that I'm aware of. But um, myself and Peter Beard, we're both sort of former documentary directors. And we set up the company back end of 2016, so getting off five and a half, six years ago. And primarily it was a docs company. But towards the end of my directing career, I'd started writing and directing fairly low-budget drama. And when we set up story films, there was always... I always had an appetite for seeing if we could expand into scripted at some point. The first sort of two or three years, we've been exclusively documentary. And then probably over the last sort of three years, we've 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 actually divided the company now. And I, looked off, I look after the scripted slate, and Pete looks after the documentary slate. So, you know, last couple of years we made Deceit for Channel 4 and The Thief, His Wife and the Canoe for ITV. Yeah, and I guess, you know, with your documentary background, then I guess it's perhaps no surprise you've gone down the, uh, you know, predominantly you've gone down the sort of crime and, and the true crime 
route in terms of your scripted projects? I mean, what was that a natural course for you to take? And, and why have, has that genre, do you think, just captured viewers' imaginations like no other over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's, um, it's part of our DNA, I think, because in documentary, in the documentary work we've done, both prior to setting up story and, and that story, we've done a lot of work with the police and we've done a lot of work in true crime. And so there was a natural, uh, it, it, it's quite interesting the way we've worked in, in the development process, because quite often we'll get ideas and we'll say, is this best suited to documentary or to drama? Is this story best told in the form of documentary or drama? And there's a bit of a cross-pollination of ideas between the two sides of the company, which is really useful. And, and yeah, we, we, we naturally started telling telling true stories, but I don't want us to only do that. I want us to be able to do pure fiction. And we've just made a Channel 5 series, which is yet to go out, which is our sort of first foray into pure fiction. And we're in development with Sky as well on a quite a big series that is also a sort of pure fiction as well. So I think gradually we're building these stepping stones where we're not reliant only on true crime and true stories. And we're we're kind of spreading our wings a little bit. I think there's an interesting thing, you know, you, you were asking about the appetite for true crime. I think there's, certainly for me, I'm trying to find a sweet spot in true crime, true stories, which is the true crime stories that you can enjoy and that have got an entertaining heart to them. And there's a lot of true crime that isn't that, which is darker and much more challenging to watch. And at the moment, I'm sort of foraging a little bit more in the lighter end of that genre, which the sort of Thief, His Wife and the Canoe and Quiz are sort of probably good examples of, of that. No, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I was, I was going to ask about, you know, how you maybe choose the, the stories that you pick up because, you know, certainly Deceit was a harrowing crime story, but you told it from the point of view of the female undercover, you know, officer who had to get close to who was, who they thought was the suspect uh, for anyone who knows the case. And, and that, that struck me as a very, you know, interesting way to, to tell that story. And, and also the interrogation of Tony Martin that you did that again, that was could have been a very straight kind of story that you told there, but you told it by using only police transcripts. So it was all verbatim, which again, is, you know, a very interesting take on it. So when you pick up these stories, I mean, do they always strike you as yes, let's tell that story? Or do you have to dig around and think, well, well, how are we going to tell that story? Yeah, it's very much the latter because I I don't sort of believe in retelling stories just because the stories are good or interesting or compelling I always I guess the thing that I always do there's two things really is one what are we going to learn about the human condition by telling this story or revisiting this story and particularly if you're revisiting a story that's going to be very challenging for the real people who are still who are still living and have to deal with this so I, I always like interrogate very very forensically what what are we going to learn through telling revisiting this story and sometimes you you are going to learn something through the passage of time and and through the prism of looking at looking at a story through the prism of 15 years later on society as it exists now might reflect on that story or tell you things about that story that you wouldn't have thought about or learned at the time it happened so sometimes it that sometimes it's point of view in deceit as you, as you say, Michael, it, there was a very, it's a sexual politics angle to that story that the, the writer developed, which was very much about 
the early 90s and the time and place that, that it happened and, and, and how women were viewed and how women were treated in, in, that, in that period of time and the challenges for this particular undercover officer. So, you know, it could have been a, a process-driven straight crime story, but that story about the Rachel McHale murder and Wimbledon Common has been told in documentary before. And so... There has to be a reason for revisiting these stories for me. And it, it could be an approach, it could be in the form but or, or point of view. But usually more often for me, it's like, what does it tell us about us when we dig deeper into, into the nature of the story? It's usually about the why, not the what happened, but the why. Yeah, and I, I was interested then to see or to, to think when you're chatting to Peter about, you know, should this be a documentary or should this be a drama room? If you're batting for the, the scripted side of things, what are you saying about these stories that you feel a drama can add to them in the way that you tell them? Or, or just what do you think drama can sometimes add to, you know, true life cases, you know, that a documentary perhaps wouldn't or would take a different sort of lean to them? I think one of the fundamental things about it is the unfolding experience of the story and the unfolding experience that that central character or protagonist goes through on a journey that you can only tell or, or feel you can only feel it and experience it through it actually happening in the in the present tense if you like and if you're looking at a retrospective story which you know is what we're talking about is quite often if I'm batting for it on the drama side it's because I feel that we can only get to the heart of the experience of that protagonist through seeing it unfold in drama but sometimes there'll be a story that we're looking at and I, I, I might feel that even though that is a really strong element of it that, that I think can be executed beautifully and powerfully through drama, it might, it might be that there is something still missing in that story which isn't going to be satisfying it told in a drama way. It may be like the last third of the story doesn't feel complete enough or satisfying enough to be told in the drama form. But, but it's usually about... Uh, about the the lived experience of the protagonist yeah so and so when you uh, apply that to the thief his wife in the canoe i mean uh, you know the, the, the just the word canoe kind of conjures you know Anne and john darwin and that photo in, in panama um you know and for people who don't know the story it's obviously about a man who decides to fake his own death for insurance claim purposes by you know paddling off in his canoe and and then hoping to set up a new life for him and his wife in in panama until they're they're kind of rumbled but i mean so what was was it about that story that struck you as, as a good drama because i mean certainly i really loved watching it and and for me part of it was just how unbelievable most of it was <laughs> you know it's yeah. uh you know I, I spoke to the writer uh chris lang and and he was saying that if he'd have pitched this no one would have taken it because it was just too far-fetched so what what did you see in it at that very early stage that you thought well this could be a good drama well i, I think my view about it was it's always been about the why like and in particular about how did Anne Darwin become complicit in this extraordinary plan? You know, ultimately, why did Anne Darwin lie to her own children for five years about her husband being dead, their father being dead? That's what made it... Because because the, the story of the events is the story of the events, and undeniably, it's extraordinary and compelling and powerful. But that can be told as documentary. X happened and Y happened and Z happened, and then you'll never guess what happened after that. So it can be told in documentary, but when you're exploring the why, it's like, to me, it then 
shines a spotlight in the re- in the nature of the relationship between the husband and wife and what was it about that relationship that led the wife to do something completely unimaginable so it becomes about the sort of human dynamics and the the marital relationship and it comes about the notion of power and vulnerability and somebody losing themselves within a marriage to the point where they would do something extraordinary and how and why that happens i knew it was a brilliant story but it was about the why for me but you always know that you've got the engine the narrative engine of this fantastic story that's going to keep people gripped and hopefully Hopefully, want to make them know also inquisitive and curious about how and why. No, yeah, I mean Monica Dolan as as Anne is is it's a terrific performance, and you certainly feel a whole range of emotions towards her, don't you? You, you know, like you say, you're you're wondering why she's going along with this ridiculous scheme, and and uh, every turn she keeps going along with it, and you're just like, <laughs> why? <laughs> why are you doing this? Yeah, and it's um, you know the the other thing, like myself and Chris, sort of very very early want to tell it from Anne's point of view because Anne is the one who has to do all the lying. She's front of house, lying to the police, to her family, to her sons, to her friends, to her colleagues, to the coroner. She's having to take the burden of all the lies. And that is the interesting, really interesting position, how she can emotionally deal with doing that and reconcile doing that and and what it's doing to her. Because John Darwin doesn't have to do that. All he's doing is hiding in the bedsit next door and walking around seating crew with a long beard. On it, he, he, she's got, she's got the um, the, the really difficult um, role in that. In terms of the company, I mean, how have the last couple of years been for you through the pandemic? You've obviously been filming uh, the thief, so you know it's great that you've managed to do that. I mean, how how uh, are things with you now? Is it kind of back to business, or are you still recovering, or or finding what back to business looks like in the post pandemic world? From my point of view, it seems quite healthy at the moment. You know, people are sort of navigating and negotiating their way through filming in this stage of the pandemic. I mean, I think the pandemic it keeps reinventing itself doesn't it and like it's not just one thing but we were one of the first companies I think to make drama during the pandemic because when we made Deceit which was uh, September of 2020 it was a very steep learning curve then and it was quite nerve-wracking and scary you know you had the benefit of the government's um, insurance scheme which uh, was very reassuring and then by the time we made The Thief um, we were a bit more well-versed in all the protocols and it, it didn't seem quite as daunting. And then uh, back end of last year, we made a drama for Channel 5 in Ireland. And um, that was interesting because, you know, we weren't covered by the government insurance because it wasn't a British production. So we had to take out insurance on the open market. And that is, you know, considerably more expensive. And you you can only cover certain members of the cast and crew, otherwise the policy just becomes extortionate uh, and so that was slightly more nerve-wracking you 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 go through it with fingers crossed a little bit but I think the sort of like I think people have got much more robust about it now and you know there's a realization that you just you, you have to take face this head-on it is what it is and it morphs at certain stages and become feels more risky at some stages than others I mean, it is a bit worry is a bit of a worry about the uncertainty of the the government insurance because you know if you if you if, if you got to stop 
on production, you've got to stop. And every day you stop, it's very costly. How, how do you see things going forward then over the next sort of six months, 12 months? Uh, I guess it depends on the pandemic, doesn't it? In a lot of ways, but are you finding that support is now being kind of pulled back and, and you're kind of being left to kind of fend for yourselves? <laughs> but it, it, it looks that way. Yeah, it's um, it's um, it's interesting, and I do feel like we're a bit bit on our own again, and having to sort of navigate our way through it. You know, the, the support is looks like it's going. I, I don't quite know how that will pan out because people are still getting COVID, and a lot of people are getting COVID. And if people are unwell and uh, on on set, you can't you can't work, and so there's going to be stops. I don't I don't quite know how that's going to work, to be honest. So then you've still managed to obviously keep making shows, and and you've got your as you mentioned your first full fully fictional drama coming up for Channel 5. I mean, tell us a bit about Witness Number 3 and, and how you came to that story. Yeah, Witness Number 3, yeah, it's our first sort of fictional story. But it, quite interestingly, it's grounded in something very authentic and, uh, well, it's grounded in something that happens up and down the country every week, which is basically that the conceit around the story is that a, 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 an ordinary woman, uh, she's a hairdresser, she's opening a salon one morning and she sees something quite innocuous that, that there's two men uh, who walk past the front of the salon and they look a bit suspicious their behaviour but nothing remarkable and then it transpires that there's been a murder and there's a police appeal for information and what she's actually witnessed that day is the killer and the victim moments before this victim is killed so it's suddenly this innocuous moment uh, sort of spirals and she becomes the significant witness in a murder but the person that she's identified is a senior player in the local gang and what happens then is that the the gang sets out to intimidate her into not giving evidence and it's a very sort of terrifying sort of campaign that's waged against her to stop her her speaking out so that's the journey and it, it, it was really interesting sort of doing the first sort of fictional a pure fictional project because we work within the parameters of the in truth in by nature truth crime stories and true stories they give you the the tracks to work within and um you know uh for want of a better word we're starting with a blank piece of paper and you're making it up and it's something very liberating about that but you know it, it's quite a heightened uh, genre thriller i think when channel five we were talking with channel five about it we were talking about harry brown meets hitchcock and and so it is it's incredibly tense but it is grounded in something very real and the writer thomas Eccleshire worked quite closely with a detective a retired detective around the nature of what might happen in these stories in terms of how the intimidation might happen and what's support and protection the police would offer to that witness and it's not a story about witness protection which we've seen quite a lot it's a, it's a story about witness intimidation this woman is trying to front this out and this gang is is incrementally and increasingly putting more and more pressure on her and not just her but her wider family to stop her testifying yeah wow it's um yeah i mean it sounds a compelling story already and i know channel five have built a reputation for you know those compelling sort of mystery dramas that they 
they show over sort of three or four nights in a row. So what was it like working with them? And because they're, they're really building a platform for drama at the moment. It was a really good experience, actually, because I, I got to say at the beginning, I was I was nervous about the budgets because the budgets are much lower than you'd be used to working with on, on other platforms. So I was, I was nervous about that and our ability to be able to make a project of quality on the budget that we had. But I think we've managed that. Uh, and, and that's down to the brilliant director, brilliant producer, Dermot Goggins, uh, who recently made Kin for AMC in Ireland, the producer, Alex Jones and, and Thomas Eccleshout. I think we've managed to make something that we feel is quality. But what I would say about working with Channel 5, which is great, is the budgets might not be quite what you're used to, but you get um, a lot of creative freedom and latitude. And there's not a bureaucracy or hundreds of people breathing down your neck at every stage to you know there's not there's not loads of commissioners there's not loads of execs so you get a lot of freedom creatively to to play around with it yeah well yeah i've heard that from channel five you know it seems to be they're they're very hands-off but then you get a lot of freedom and and just to tell the story which is i guess what they want and 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 these thrillers you know they're very specific tone of voice aren't they often with the writer and the producer so it's um i guess that's the that's what you want isn't it what's next for you what are you kind of you know where, where are the opportunities for you over the next year and and where will story films sort of be moving next do you think yeah i think there's a couple of things there's um we want to become a sort of key supplier in the true story genre not necessarily always true crime it could be true stories that aren't crime you know as you were alluding to at the beginning michael there's a real appetite for that kind of drama and i think we're quite well placed to do that because it's natural to our dna from the documentary background and you know we've done a couple of shows like that now so we're gaining experience in terms of how to make true story drama. But the other thing is we want to we want to evolve and and be making more fictional projects as well. So the Channel Five one we're now doing a second Channel Five series, really early stages. But we've got an exciting project in with Sky, which would be a big step in that direction in this in the fictional space. So yeah, they're, they're the two sort of areas for us at the moment. And and are you concerned at all about? perhaps uh, reality and, and factual kind of fighting back on, on the drama boom and, and streamers, you know, seemingly losing subscribers. And, and there's a bit of a crisis, it seems, at, at Netflix in particular, about where subscribers might be putting their money going forward. I mean, what kind of industry concerns are there that you have? Or do you think that's just a storm in a teacup, maybe? I think it is a little bit. To be honest, I don't pay much, too much attention to that because I always think the strength is in the story that you've got. And if you're passionate about the story and you believe in the story well i can't control the other bits i can only control the stories that we generate and pitch but one thing that has been a bit of a revelation to me a bit of a wake-up call actually is no we over the last sort of 18 months two years there's been this notion circulating that we've been seduced by streaming services and there's been this notion that terrestrial telly is dying well you know episode one of canoe did eight and a half million viewers over seven days and a huge cross-section of the British viewing public were watching it which was a real wake-up call to me because you can't connect with the nation in that way on the streaming services it's really you know it's the terrestrial channels like BBC and ITV that allow you to do that and as a program maker it's incredibly exciting to be able to do that so I, I don't I don't worry about the landscape too much. I just kind of go, what's the story that we really want to tell and we think millions of people want to watch? And wherever the streaming services are or the terrestrials are, I can't control that. 
Story Films' David Nath. Sky original drama The Midwich Cuckoos updates John Wyndham's classic novel for television as the sleepy titular town is plunged into panic after a mysterious blackout that's caused every woman of childbearing age to have inexplicably fallen pregnant. Starring Keely Hawes, Max Beasley and Sinov Carlson, it launches on Skymax on June 2nd with all episodes on now. Writer David Farr and director Alice Troughton spoke to Michael Pickard about adapting Wyndham's sci-fi horror, gender-switching a key character, how the series speaks to modern themes of parenting and the challenges of crewing the show. Something a bit different for you this time after a few seasons of Hannah and, and different yeah. things? Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, uh, this has been a passion project because it's something that both Alice and I uh, read when we were kids. I, was, I think we were about the same age, 12, 13. And it, I, I, I just, it just totally stayed with me. I was in this little town in Surrey. And it, it, it's one of those cute little community, remote community dramas where if, you really, if you're brought up in a small town in that kind of way, it resonates with you as a teenager and you see the world or outside, you're thinking, yeah, basically I live in this world where you know, there's this inherent dread and alienation. So it was great, you know, flash forward 30, 40 years and, you know, after a lot of incredible producer effort to actually to get the rights, which were genuinely difficult in this case because of that Hollywood film, they became available. And to think that, you know, you're suddenly reviving the story and that actually, let's be honest, a lot of young people don't know Wyndham anymore. So it's not, I and mean, people say, oh, he's a great icon and he is genuinely great, but people don't really know. He's not so, and so to have the opportunity to bring him in a very fresh way with big changes, I mean, I think the obvious one being a hugely big shift from the male narrative to the female. I mean, that's very obvious, isn't it? From the sort of male Zellaby to the Keely Hawes female Zellaby and, and much more focusing on the mothers uh, because obviously that's what it's really about um, but to be able to bring that to the screen now is, is, a, is a real privilege and was, I just want to say it was really important to us that we found a director who would get what we you know who loved Wyndham and loved everything that is sci-fi and great about Wyndham but also was it was had the imagination to bring it to the to the to, to that fresh view and Alice was just literally the best by a mile that we kind of met so it's very exciting that she came on board. Right. Alice is, is that I guess that's all true is it you, you would say? <laughs> <laughs> Surprised me this how 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 similar David and I were about it. Um, I did read it at thirteen, and uh, I think it was twelve or thirteen. And Day of the Triffids, that brilliant series with John Dutton was on, and uh, that was that t- totally took over my imagination. I mean, that was Doctor Who was part of my sci-fi education. Um, it was terrifying the Triffids, and um, uh, I, I actually uh, really do nick bits from those series. I nick bits from the film, and I, I'd like to call them homage rather than nicking, but you know they inspired quite a few bits in um, my episodes of Midwich. And then um, I, you know, again, we always wondered why people hadn't done them and it was a real rights issue. But David's script, when I read it, was just, it was it was brilliant. It was brilliant and it didn't rush it and it was so clever and bold and it was such a reinvention. And yes, it did need, a, it needed a, a, another gaze. It needed a female director. Um, uh, but uh, we were very much on the same page, which was splendid. And I don't think actually we've moved off the same page since then and we're, we're really happy with how it's, it's turned out it's been joyous it's been a joyous project oh, fantastic that's, that's what you hope for isn't it when you when you start these year two year yeah, things, yeah. You, if it's not joyous uh, you know hopefully it is that and actually as we get older and wiser and and as i have evolved as a director i just don't go in for things that i can't give that level of passion to you know it, it you, you just can't fake that and you can't fake that with uh, your actors and you can't fake that in you know on the floor and so I, I just don't go go for things that I don't think I can give that commitment that level of commitment to but luckily for me I get very passionate about a lot of things so I am <laughs> <laughs> um and so I mean so David then I mean to just take us back to the beginning you mentioned you know the riots issues and, and that was going on were you kind of working on this while you were hoping that to kind of 
you know, sort itself no, out, or was no? This you, a... That would be too torturous. No. You, <laughs> but what was funny is once it once the you know once the deal was done, the phone call was made, and it was like no, it came very quickly because it had been sitting there, and I I don't really remember. I don't think I'd even thought about some of the changes I made. The, the big thing was changing Zellerby over. I mentioned that because yeah. as soon as you do that, the whole shift of the focus and anything. Okay, so she's a child psychologist, going to get an amazing actress. She's going to be my lead. Obviously, getting Keely Hills was was just fabulous. She's <laughs> perfect. Sort of got this mixture of she can be very glamorous but she can also be very emotionally messy which is what I wanted you know you, you want a real woman in this you don't want some kind of uh, you know perfect figure you want someone and as the, I don't know how much you've seen but as the show goes on it gets it goes into some pretty dark faces for her um, yeah and she's a listener the, the whole tone of the show becomes much quieter than the book Book everyone's chatting the whole time there's not that much dialogue in some of this in some of the show really it's done a lot more through imagery really and she, but then of course you know you develop Agatha don't you you develop a character so suddenly I think okay she's going to have a daughter and the daughter will have a child and that's interesting because then you get into the kind of all the ghosts of having had your own child and what that brings up and jealousies between and there's obviously you can tell from episode one there are issues between mother and daughter very clear issues going on and that that is for me probably in a way although I think it is a multi-narrative story that is probably the central spine that that one there's the Sam and Zoe are very important as well Zoe becomes a kind of rebel in a way you know she's the one who sees clearly that something's wrong and resists but she she finds herself unable to do so and that's really interesting I think she's a wonderful actress Ashley mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so so was that a clear when you when you kind of picked up the book again and were going through it? I mean, was that a clear? Uh, you know, Zellaby's the lead, and and the story kind of focuses around her, or because obviously the book, there's you know, it's a big, there's a whole town of, of characters to kind of weave in and out. So. Oh yeah, and no, that's the same. I, I, we definitely okay. wanted an ensemble, but mm-hmm. you know, you just you, you, I felt like in the town being very iconic about it. I wanted a priestess priest. So that she looks after the flock, okay. you know, a bit like in a western, if you like. Like you have, and then also you have the sheriff, which is Paul. And then very often in in those westerns, you do have the young couple who come out, come to town, often on the carriage, if you know what I mean, with the horses, looking for the new life. And that's Sam and Zoe. And I find those things really helpful because they just provide little like the spine that you can then just follow. And then all the other characters are very much like in a western, like in those small those towns that you can fill them with wonderful characteristics and color. And I love some of those performances of those roles. But I think you, you sort of yeah, you're right. You still as a, as a writer and as a as director, you sort of need to vaguely know where you're coming back to as your central spine, and, mm-hmm. and then obviously you also attract an actress like Healy. And you were not going to, you know, she she's a she's a, she she was so quick in her response. She just wanted to do it immediately, which was one of the most joyous moments. It was when Alice and I were both there at that moment, going, "Wow, brilliant!" Basically said yes in an email. You know, it was just like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We hadn't even done the money. Um, you know, it was just wonderful. Just like a kind of like she wanted to do this. She wanted to do this part because she could feel that it had the legs. And and I guess the the series is pitched as a kind of a, a reimagining. So what can you tell us then about maybe other changes, other little tweaks or, or you know, modernizations perhaps that you've done? You've, you've talked about, you know, it's obviously a, a, a story about parenthood and, and maybe more so motherhood now, you know, with the gender switch. So what else can you tell us about how you've updated it perhaps? I'll do one and then Alice can do it. The one that I'd focus on is that the children in the first one in the book were totalitarian. All the same, they're kind of little Aryans or little blonde monsters mm-hmm. and they were identical, boys, girls, but they were identical. That doesn't work in our, in our narrative uh, a because it doesn't reflect the kind of world we live in we live in an individualized world where we consumerist uh, but also and also very practically you can't hide in our world in, in 1957 you can be in a tiny village in Norfolk and no one will know you're there it's not true now you know so so that whole idea you have to they have to hide in plain sight and then they become more insidious they attach much more because they look a bit more like the mothers they don't look like the fathers but they do look like the mothers so suddenly out of that comes a whole interesting different more modern idea around attachment and love as a control mechanism and all such other wonderful ideas. And I mean, I'll riff 
off that, which is that actually I would say it's about parenthood, not motherhood. Um, I think that we equally track reactions of, of all our couples and everybody has a really different reaction to it. Um, and as the series goes on, we look at nature and nurture, which is, you know, does your environment change you or do you change your environment? And there's a really beautiful balance going on. And, the, and the, again, I mean, I think in genre you can get very dystopian and I don't I think we play with whether it is or not. I think we look at the idea of a, of a homo deus, of, a, of the next species, of our next iteration. And because we're living in an environment where... Um, we're living in a time of crisis and anxiety, and, and maybe that's always been what this species has been like, you know, historic in history. That actually there is a, there's a faction that really wants to embrace an evolution, wants to jump up that evolutionary track. Why, you know, you grow quicker, so you're less vulnerable. You know, you don't have that stage as babies and as toddlers where you can be picked off by huge predators. You also can communicate in a telepathic manner. I mean, is that not evolutionary for our for a species? So I think it plays with really interesting ideas. Is that that we actually, as, as as a species, want to think about and look at and look at the future, really. And so, so Alice, at what stage was the project when you came on board? And uh, I guess if you've read the novel, you you might have some quite clear ideas, perhaps, of you know how you might want to film it, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, my primary relationship is with the writer. Uh, as a director, if, if if that relationship isn't solid, then then I can't do my job properly. So it's always looking at David's vision and looking. Uh, uh, and we, as David and I, riff and and kind of chuck things at each other and it's been a really joyous kind of collaboration but I will always come back to his source material because he's done the thinking um and so I suppose for me what we did we I spent a lot of time on this for as a project I think it's nearly a year and a half in total we did a lot of development before we even um uh, went through pre-production and we talked conceptually we talked thematically we talked about mythology so you know just one of those ideas is the the idea of the changeling you know which is a, a something that goes through all mythologies Irish Indian you know uh, the, the mythology of your baby being swapped and uh, is something that uh, goes goes very far back so that was uh, one of the themes you opted I mean the one thing uh, the one set sequence I'd say that where you took the script and went, really went with it in a way that's been hugely successful is the birthing well it's yeah. just you know I think I what I did say is that if you're going to you know shift the gaze into a female driven because it's about group group of women giving birth to uh, uh, potentially alien babies you can't not do the birthing <laughs> you can't go and oh they're all there <laughs> you know so and actually I found it fascinating because at that point David had written that the babies you know they all simultaneously decide to be born and so <laughs> it's not natural it's not naturalistic it's that all the women give birth at the same time um, and so that the, there's a kind of and also what I really wanted to do because I did the first two and then Jennifer Perrett took over the next um, three I really wanted to end episode two on a kind of epiphanical and hugely kind of you know uh, tantalizing note and so we literally end episode two with the birth of the babies and then onwards through their iterations from other directors i'm interested to know a bit more about how you brought the outside world in because like you say in the book it's a very insular community and there's not much sort of information passing in and out of the of the community so how did you you know i think even in the first episode when there's the blackout you know people are saying you know there's been no tweets there's been no calls nothing i mean so how how does the outside world affect you know uh the town in in the series would you say well very little because what happens well where we what we've kept very faithful to is the simple idea that the children have no interest in leaving until they're ready and that's for an entirely biologically protective reason they don't they're, they're vulnerable and they feel safe 
safe here. So actually that works really, and they therefore coerce, or you could say control, or you could say persuade that their parents, they just don't leave. And so they, they and then what then happens mostly willingly in speech marks is the parents sort of isolate themselves, which is, of course is a great metaphor for, for parenthood in small towns anyway. You isolate yourself from your old friends, old communities, old networks, and you become increasingly self-contained and small. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, strangely, it is, there is still, I think, very important in this piece is this notion of a community that slightly kind of cuts itself off, but it doesn't do it. It does it sort of weirdly, willingly. And then you'll see towards the end, there's this sudden very violent shift when the children realize that when decide that, no, that's enough now and we're ready. And that's when, and so for me, it's quite exciting because you get this, 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 and, and just one little burst out and attempt to escape. One little I, attempt to escape. I need to do my zombie ant parallel. <laughs> yes. Oh, this is one something that we had such fun with, which is, you know, is this symbiotic or is this parasitic? Um, and you're asking those questions. And then David and I came across this zom- uh, zombie ant case where a parasite gets into an ant, a particular kind of ant, and lives within it until it's ready to go away. And then it will make the ant go to the very top of a, a, a kind of piece of grass or a, and it will then spore and burst out of the ant and uh, killing it, the it process, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so that was fairly joyous and I think fairly similar to what yeah it's very similar it's very similar yeah honestly look it up though zombie ants yeah. we'll come across it it's right there <laughs> the, the cuckoo we never really talk about the title but the cuckoo metaphor is obviously vital you know the nest we talk a lot about the nest in the show yeah uh, and you go into the nest you, you make yourself at home you mimic you mimic to, to create attachment mm-hmm. and then when you're ready you boot boot everything out you have no loyalty whatsoever that's the and that's just nature that's, that's not invented that's nature so that's why it's really interesting how you label this because that is nature we have not made that up because nor did Wyndham you know the idea of the cuckoo that this poor tiny bird is feeding this ever expanding monstrosity because she's attached to it you know and we attach to our children that's why we 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 ensure our survival as a species is that we know love you know love will kill you is our title of this because you know we we that is part of how we we evolve and exist and that can be taken advantage of and and actually the cuckoos David does something brilliant which is he kind of infers that it's happened before and uh, and so the cuckoos have learned better they're better cuckoos than they were in you know before they know they know where the dangers lie they know what what threat humanity can give them brilliant why wouldn't you do this job it's a fantastic job <laughs> oh definitely I mean so Alice how, how would you then describe the way you filmed the show did you want to give it obviously a very unique style because um, people you know horror fans particularly will be familiar with the creepy child kind of 70s film and and did you want to kind of move away from that kind of just blankless stare or was that something you wanted to include I'm, perhaps? A, bit, I'm a bit too old for that as a director I'm not trying to prove anything at the moment you know? <laughs> I, I I don't I I really don't and I know that sounds quite I don't know what does that sound um I don't I don't try and prove anything through my filmmaking I really let the cast and the script take me into the shots and I suppose what I do like is I like a epiphany and I and I like to undercut I like horror I like I kind of like being horrified in daylight I, you know there's lots that I there's a sumptuousness and a richness and I think it's it's followed with the score by Hannah Peel which isn't a horror score it's a score of great beauty and great thrill and um, I just tried to do my shots like that really things that engaged me but you know it's quite an organic process it, it, it's something that I don't I definitely prep and I had a wonderful DP an amazing DP David Katz Nelson who had just come off It's a Sin and who 
who is one of the most brilliant cinematographers. And so we followed each other, really. We, we went quite instinctively. We let the cast do their brilliant performances and then just thought how to interpret that. But I really, you know, I, I, I quite like, I like surprises within genre and I like the redemptiveness of this storyline, certainly for characters like Cassie at the end, when you have, you've seen in the end of episode one, when there's that gorgeous sort of feeling and she's lifted, you know, there's a, there's a joy and an epiphany in that. And uh, my my shots and my filmmaking followed that feeling. And then the great joy of doing post-production, which is always, I think for me, so undervalued as, you know, we, we directors jump onto other jobs, but actually I spent a lot of time in post with this, realising the soundscape. I will probably win Howard Bafters for his sound thing again, because I always tend to and the thing. So, so you know, it's, it's a construct. Can I just say that we also, as the sound effect for the cookies, because I've been really inspired by the Triffid sound effect and how you could just hear that rattle of Triffid, uh, that we took the Aurora Borealis, the sound, our brilliant sound mixer, Simon Bish, had the sound of this crackle. So when you hear the crackle within it, that's actually the Aurora Borealis, if you were recording it. And we put that in as a, a kind of a subliminal of their coming. And it changes when they're here in different episodes, but that was very much the they are coming feeling to it. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe for both of you, is, does the, the story kind of play out in stages? You have kind of that first couple of episodes where it's, you know, something strange has happened and then you have the the birth and, and the raising of the children. But then stage three is perhaps, you know, the children turn and, and become more sinister. Is that is that how you've kind of worked through the story or is it a bit more fluid than that? Maybe I'm, I'm It's a little more it. fluid, but no, I mean, there is a there's certainly a one of the challenges of the storytelling is it takes place over time. And so, yeah, that we there's the, the kind of the, what you might loosely call the, the arrival, which is the first two episodes. And then you've got this period of I would call it attachment or not attachment in the middle before the children decide whether they're going to do anything and then you've got a decision that's crucially made towards the end and um that's yeah so there is it's 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 an unusual structure in that for me in the timescales but i think the, the excitement for me was to manage to bring the viewer through through the storytelling and particularly with the amazing casting with these young kids who you haven't seen them yet but you know you've seen them at different ages but they've cast them brilliantly we took a lot long 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 time over that to make sure that you really follow these these young there's about three or four that you really care about what, what, what were just any challenges you had in the writing David obviously it's a different source material to perhaps maybe you know obviously adapted uh, you know books before the night manager but obviously Hannah was a, a film that you were kind of working against how was this in as terms of an adaptation or were you kind of leaving the book to one side quite early on I left it yeah I did leave it a bit but I would then I'd come back when it, when I was suddenly kind of it's one of those books you can just dip in to come back to and get little nuggets of wonderful it just almost like helps you out of things I think probably you know it's always about with with this kind of work you kind of have to create a, a background mythology that works for you but then you don't want to tell it in a conventional sense because you want to leave space and that's where suspense comes from it comes from you know wanting to not knowing wanting to know and not being clear that's always I think that's always a, a challenge for writers because you have to kind of know it and then forget it and those those processes are, are, are something that's perhaps more difficult in sci-fi than it is perhaps in thriller I don't know yeah and, and Alice any, any challenges for you I mean like you said you know David mentioned the kids what was it like working with you know lots of children who are not even just you know peripheral characters they're quite central to the story aren't they so I imagine you had to do a lot with them on set but I had less to do with them because 
as I did the first two, where it only gives up to the birth, but and um, Jennifer Perrett and then Borker Sixon went on to them. But I would say that they all of us would say that the children actually weren't the challenge once they were cast because they were so uh, responsive and brilliant. And it's the next generation of fantastic actors. And actually, it was you know Jill Trevelyan who did the casting. You know, saw thousands, thousands of children. And uh, what we have is you know the next generation of actors. They're fantastic. They're really brilliant. So they actually and and likewise, uh, we had COVID there, but you know everybody was incredibly resilient and like you get the way that productions have moved through it and, and 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 risen to the challenge and in fact what's happening to our industry now is is peculiar because i think with the pandemic we've now become the safest industry to work in and as you know we've gone away from don't let your daughter on the stage mrs worthington which is kind of still true in theater but to the fact that television and film is recruiting people at university level because it's a glut industry so actually one of the challenges was keeping keeping our crew through a really long series because you know yeah. you you have disney plus making how many shows and you know at six million an episode that time oh you know don't quote me on that but you know at at a huge at really high budgets and so we are in a glut industry we don't have enough crew and it would and i think that that's something that we could be taking out there which is we need more crew to join our industry we actually are thriving and that's a joy to see but also means that we have a responsibility to the other industries that aren't thriving like theater and live performance David Farr and Alison Troughton speaking with Michael Pickard. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next week. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 